it's a great pleasure to introduce um, my good friend, Paul Filosetti, who's going to talk to us about some unusual property types in Yellowstone. Paul Felicity informed me that everything we have on his bio sheet is incorrect. So, I said, should I read this? And he goes, oh, God, no. <laughs> There's nothing right on that. So I'm merely going to introduce him as my longtime friend, who is a wonderful historic architect with A&E Architects in Missoula and a former member of the State Historic Preservation Review Board. But we met back in the early 90s when I was working at, historic re at HRA uh, across the street, we had offices across the street from each other. So, with that, I'll welcome our good friend, Paul Felicetti. Well, thank you very much, everyone, and thank you for taking your time out today to be here to learn about this unusual subject that we all experience every day, um, hopefully. And uh, so we're going to take a little tour. I, just to give you a little bit more information about myself. Um, I am an historic preservation architect. I'm architect. I graduated from MSU. Um, Postgraduate degree, and Fred Quivick was on my master's um, board. Um, I am um, a preservation architect with A&E. And if you saw Crystal Herzog's presentation yesterday regarding Old Faithful Inn, that project and renovation of um, Old Faithful Inn came out of our offices in Missoula. We have a preservation studio there consisting of, I think there's seven of us. But that was primarily myself, Jim McDonald, um, Dennis Johnson, and Crystal Herzog. And I'm going to be talking about Mammoth, Hot Springs Hotel, and Lake Hotel, in addition to Old Faithful. A little bit light on the Old Faithful side, because it was discussed um, yesterday. Uh, but those are all three renovation projects that came out of our office, renovation and preservation, because I think those are three excellent examples of what architects do to preserve buildings, not only renovate them. Um, so this discussion is, um, originally it was called Potty in the Park. <laughs> and I think somebody scratched that and we turned to comfort stations, restrooms, and private bathrooms in Yellowstone. I am not a historian. I I am an architect, a preservation architect, who has an interest, and we were kicking around ideas in the office, and somebody said, well, we do a lot of restrooms. You know, when we do these renovations, we do a lot of restrooms. Why doesn't somebody talk about these restrooms? So that's what I'm going to dive into eventually, but I'm going to go through this long process to get there. Um, a lot of this stuff you've already heard. So in one way, I'm going to kind of move through it a little bit faster because it's already been introduced by other amazing speakers that we've heard today. So um, with that, there we go. So knowing that human history in the park began or is documented to begin over 11,000 years ago, um, everybody leaves a little bit of themselves behind in, in, you know, in that process. <laughs> and so this presentation explores a little bit of that and uh, how travel, um, particularly modern means of travel, have impacted park development and then subsequently um, guest services, which then leads to toilets and bathrooms in the park. So what I hope to leave you with in the end is uh, a little bit more about what happens when you flush or not in Yellowstone National Park. So we begin with the discovery of uh, Native, Ameri Ar Native American artifacts at Mammoth Hot Springs Hotel, or Mammoth Hot Springs itself in the uh, geothermal features. 
And it's suggested that it, that discovery al allowed the understanding that, they, that that area was used for bathing and cooking even before um, we could imagine. So it, there's a record, a documented record that this was being used. Um, and with kind of thinking along that line, knowing that that's happened, it's, it's important, I think, to acknowledge that the landscape of Yellowstone changes. Everything that we've done as a human race has altered Yellowstone in some way. And it begins at that point where we find these artifacts and then more impact occurs as we kind of proceed through this. But just to acknowledge that, that the park has changed because of these things that we're going to talk about. And uh, um, kind of setting up a timeline here, and again, it's been discussed earlier, so I'm not going to dig into it too much, but John Coulter is the first one, 1807 comes in, 1830s is a Russell Osborne um, ex expedition that comes in, and, and then uh, next, 1869 is Folsom Cook expedition, the Washburn-Langford expedition in 1870, and the Hayden Expedition, first Hayden Expedition in 1871. And by this time, word spread. Like there's, now it's like in the media, people know this place exists. It's well known that it exists and uh, people are gonna come. You know, people, with, people who can are gonna come. And with that, um, 1871, we see the development beginning and uh, a fellow by the name of Jack Barnett builds a bridge over the Yellowstone River just above the Lamar River. So that allows that connection. And then the Yellowstone, in 1872, Yellowstone National Park Association Act actually establishes a park um, by uh, Grant, President Grant. So the first national park is born in 1872. So now not only do we have the understanding of Yellowstone and all these amazing geological features, but now we've got this new idea, hey, there's a park, this, Yellow, this national park, so now we've got two reasons to, for people to come here. 1882 is the image here of John Yancey's hotel. It was discussed, I think, during one of the programs this morning, um, Yancey's Pleasant Valley Hotel, um, where accommodations were considered less than ideal. This um, building accommodated 20 guests, and it was said that whiskey glasses at Yancey's were undefiled by water. <laughs> Which I think speaks volumes to the accommodations that one would expect to see here as well. So uh, one traveler had said that the ordinary traveler would find neither palatable food nor decent accommodations. <laughs> but people are still coming. You know, this is still um, part of what people are coming for. Um, and it, I, I think these early accommodations speak to that rough frontier environment that's in the park. 1880s through the 18, I'm sorry, 1920s is Bath Lake, and there's a lot of information out there on this um, as Bath Lake was came and went from the public view. Um, and so it is a it is a means for um, people who are traveling, roughing it in the park, if you will, to find a place to at least bathe um, and have that to them. Big, big changes start to come, as Paul suggested, Paul Shea talked about this morning, when the railroad lands and uh, Northern Pacific Railroad um, comes in and that's when the real big changes start to happen. 
um, and the hotel and the hotel development uh, starts to begin. So originally six horse carriages. This is a four horse carriage that I'm showing, but six horse horse carriages bring people from uh, the Northern Railroad Depot at Cinnabar, which is just north of Gardner at the time, and they bring them into the park and they land at National Hotel. So National Hotel is the first major hotel in the national park system. So this isn't only the first hotel in, in Yellowstone, this is the first one in the park system. And it is high class, like as high class as you would expect as a traveler coming into the park. You're in the, this bastion of wilderness and yet you have a first class experience. There's running water, they're pulling hot water out of the, out of the uh, adjacent hot springs or hot pools and uh, sending it into the hotel. So there's actually flush toilets electricity, the generated electricity, and it's questionable what happens to the effluent or wastewater or sewage as it exits the hotel, but certainly the river's just downstream or downhill, <laughs> conveniently, so there's a, there, and I haven't researched it, but presumably that could be an option that, um, that they just drains down into the river and they, you know. Yeah, then it just, you know, goes away. And I just wanted to point out that this building, um, the National Hotel, this portion over here, um, eventually becomes Mammoth Hot Springs Hotel. So, um, you know, it's, it's still, still in use today in, in a sense, um, in its character. Um, 1886, the U.S. Army shows up and uh, begins management of the park. And again, more people in the park. Um, they developed these wood frame buildings at Camp Sheridan at the Fort of the Mammoth Hot Springs Terrace and uh, utilize the hot water again for, at the terrace. And uh, again, the military might dig a, a pit or something, but as well, the river's right there too. So they could have taken advantage of the river and, and draining effluent off into the river. 1887, the Yellowstone Park Association opens one of its first hotels and a series of hotels at Norris. Norris, Hot Spring, or Norris Hotel is here. Um, it's built in 1887, opens, and by the July of that same year, it burns down, which is a pretty common thing for these hotels. It's like, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're, not, if they're not of the ilk of the, all the protection life safety things we have today, but, you know, so burning down is a common theme that we see in them. Um, the second hotel quickly follows for guests of 20 people. But it's the idea that now, now people are understanding that, okay, when I come to the park, I expect to land in a hotel and I have these um, coaches that have brought me in. The coaches are going to tour me around the park. And at the same time, I need a place to land, a place to stay, and a decent place to sleep and, and bathe and whatnot. So with that, the Yellowstone Park Association again, 1889 is Lake Hotel. Uh, this is a three-story, at its an onset, three-story hotel um, completed with 80 guest rooms on the shores of Lake Yellowstone. And again, another convenient location for disposal of sewage is the lake. Um, there's speculation that that could have occurred. I, but this is, again, a first-class facility. Um, there's electricity, plumbing, running water, everything you would expect, steam heat and... Uh, and of course, you're in this amazing wilderness area within the park. Um, it's also the year that Montana becomes a state. 
And the next year, Wyoming becomes a state, 1890, just to give some context there. 1891, um, the park decides, hey, you know, we as, you know, within the park should um, develop some remote um, locations for guests who are traveling in a park to have accommodations. And so they specifically begin construction of this building. It's a Queen's Laundry bathhouse at the Lower Geyser, Bas Geyser Basin. This still exists today. It's, it's a natural register listed building. And this is as far as construction got. It never, it never was complete. It never had a roof put on it or truly developed into a building. But it did talk to that idea that um, there was a recognized need for external facilities besides those in the, in the, in the hotels. And we're going to talk about that as we go through here. 1891, again, the Yellowstone Park Association, they build and develop Fountain Hotel. Uh, upon completion, its hotel is 350 guest rooms, which is huge in, in this wilderness of the park. And you can see in the map kind of where it is. It was, it's eventually torn down, of course, as we know, it no longer exists. And it was the first kind of stop from um, uh, coming in from the north end of the park. Fountain is said to have cost $100,000 to build. It had included electric lights, steam heat, piped hot water, again, from the nearby hot springs. Uh, the interior walls, and this is something that I don't think could happen today, the interior walls were said to have been calcimined, that is, whitewashed, in that glue and whitewash kind of mix, um, with um, material taken from um, the uh, geyser basin. So, uh, interesting little thing there. But again, these are... Um, hotels where there is a, uh, it, within your room you might find a pitcher, a nightstand pitcher and water, but, and then communal restrooms. So you have to go down the hall for, to go to your, to a bathroom, a tub, or a, uh, a toilet fixture. Uh, there's a pause of construction from, um, for about, uh, between 1891 to 1903. <laughs> And 19, 1903, of course, it's Old Faithful, and, and the, specifically, it's the Old House, is what we're talking about, the original portion of Old Faithful Inn, which is opened in 1904, and it, too, is, you know, we all know it, epitomizes the architecture that will be discussed later, um, but it's, it's this amazingly rustic um, building that's set within this environment that's equally rustic, and yet... We have light fixtures that uh, are in your guest room. You can go in and turn on light in 1903 or 1904 in this wilderness area. Uh, there are communal restrooms, running water, um, steam heat, and um, a washstand in your room. Again, it's that washstand and pitcher, which you see in this upper corner. You just get a shadow of it here. When we come in and do the renovation, we're going to alter that. But it, in the 1960s, they came through and put in, they plumbed the building and put in these gold <laughs> sinks, orange kind of goldish sinks, and a plumbing chase that you see here. And, and so when we came in in the renovation work in the uh, uh, 2010s, um, we kind of modeled our design off the original fixtures in the, in the hotel kind of looking back at them for cues of what the new fixtures could look like, knowing that, of course, it's all replumbed, you know, all new electrical fire sprinkler system, all the, all the kind of um, up-to-date necessities, and it's all hidden behind the walls. Uh, but the, the plumbing fixtures, the whole idea was that there would be 
we would reflect back onto that base picture and basin idea and the copper nightstand or the copper stands that had had held those pictures within the guest room. So it does reflect back into that original design of the of the hotel that Reamer had uh, had developed. 1905, we see the um, opening not only of the 300 mile road system linking all the entr five entrances of the park, now known as the Grand Loop Road, um, but the Roosevelt Arch. And you can see in this photo, it's like there are a lot of people who are coming to the park. It's a big deal. And with that, 1907, the Wiley Camps start to open. I believe there are five of these scattered throughout the park in, the, in its heyday. Um, in this case, uh, you know, this is a camp that's open to 125 guests. They have common bathing facilities, um, again, using the uh, uh, hot water from the springs. Um, and uh, eating areas, dining areas for that. Um, it's a rustic experience, so while the Fountain Hotel and the National Hotel cater to uh, kind of a more elite um, clientele, this is more for the average person who's gonna get in, able to afford to get into the park and um, have a stay. Again, wastewater here, our thought is that wastewater is likely um, into a pit, so it's, it's just draining into a pit. And um, so pit tanks is what we refer to them uh, that perhaps are around some of these if they weren't near water or they might just be drained into the water. So now I'm gonna talk about um, the National Hood Hotel. Again, early on. Goes through a renovation in 1913, is renamed, um, and by the way, that renovation is by Robert Reamer, same architect. Um, is renamed the Mammoth Hot Springs Hotel. Uh, in 1936, goes through another renovation and they developed these um, individual cabins behind it, which you see here. So these are guest cabins um, with uh, restrooms in them, as, guest bathrooms in them as well. So again, it's like really starting to cater to the automobile industry and autom automobile and, and kind of a lower scale tourism, uh, tourist, I should say. Uh, and then 2019, we come along, a and &E comes along, and we renovate the building. So our goal, ultimately the goal in these buildings is life safety, seismic and life safety. And with that, it's an understanding that um, civilization has changed. Um, we all recognize that um, as we grow older, we have disabilities and um, issues that require a little bit more space to move around. So changing those principles from what is kind of utilitarian function of a, a space, um, which is just to be able to have a bathroom, to now a space that accommodates uh, a wheelchair access and uh, you know, kind of all the things you would expect to see and uh, mobility um, challenges that people have. But still taking into account some of the, well you can see the light fixture for instance is one element that it's like really trying to find cues within the original architecture that helped speak to the new architecture. I'm gonna talk about this more, but just to note the floor finish and the wall finish, lots of tile in these um, spaces and um, lots of natural woods and tile, lots of light as well. Um, these aren't dark holes in, that you walk into anymore. They're, they're quite bright and uh, the windows are, you know, you don't expect windows in a restroom, but they're there. It's, it's part of what's happening. Um, Again, these are images uh, out of Mammoth. And kind of looking at the progress of restrooms there, 1950, 
you know, just basic services. Who cares how tall you are or, you know, what your reach abilities are. It's like, hey, you got a sink, and if you can't turn on the faucet, tough luck. Next, we go, okay, well, you know, let's try and think about, in the 80s, let's try and think about a little bit more, give you a little bit more space to put your things that you're traveling with and accommodate that. Um, but if you're in a wheelchair, tough luck too. And then finally, in the, in the slide on the right, is this idea that, okay, you know, trying to develop this idea that a universal space, that anybody with uh, mobility issues, particularly hands, um, has the ability to go into that restroom and use it. If you have a height, you know, if you're short, you still have a mirror that you're going to see out. So really kind of to think about that universal guest and their guest services in the, in the hotel. Lots more storage space. And again, that, the tile floor and tile wall finishes are coming in. And that, I think in part, this is not just the park that's wanting these finishes. The Uniform Building Code, the International Building Code of the time, the codes that architects use to develop projects are dictating or mandating washable wipeable surfaces in restrooms, particularly public restrooms. And of course, it's the parks looking at it in terms of like, we're spending $30 million on renovating this hotel. We need finishes that are going to last. You know, people come in here and um, use these spaces. We need finishes that are going to last. So tile is a great answer uh, in that respect. So that's progress there. And fi one final slide on this note then is that idea of, again, looking at that ADA accessibility and light issues. In the left, an earlier picture, Mammoth, you know, you walk into kind of the dark and dingy restroom. And the idea is now it's like, hey, you've got a restroom, there's light, it feels airy, it feels clean, um, and all the principles that kind of go along with um, restroom accessibility. So 1915, automobiles are allowed in the park, and it's a pretty popular idea, as we learned last night at the... Um, uh, event at the um, Yellowstone Park. Sorry, drawing a blank. Um, anyway, uh, that these cars are tour, touring cars that bring guests in as well as private automobiles. And that, that idea of mixing private automobiles and horse-drawn carriages or horses in the park lasts for a couple of years. And in 1917, parks, the park um, prohibits uh, the use of uh, horses in the park. 1960, I should mention that the Park Service is established, so that's another layer that's in the park. 1931, there's true development and recognition of roads in the park and really looking at means to control uh, or abate dust. So these are a couple of pictures of oil being put down and cars driving around the park. Today, there are, kind of jumping forward now, today there are seven um, wastewater treatment facilities in the park. And they're typically associated with a, a, a public hotel, one of the hotels, and or the area of the hotel. Um, and not only are they the wastewater treatment centers, they're re you typically remote from location. So they, it's not like something people are going to Yellowstone to see. Um, it's not a tr an attraction. Um, <laughs> So they're not intended to be, but there's a lot, there's a tremendous amount of infrastructure that goes along with these um, and sewer treatment facilities. So they are happening inside the park, and uh, um, I'll get to some statistics about that later here. In addition to those, there's all the tank toilets that occur in the park, you know, and all the 
picnic facilities and tank toilets. So I think in terms of the way the park is viewed, it is, it's said that there is, you're never 10 minutes, more than 10 minutes away from a park if you're on the roads in Yellowstone. And with that in mind, I think we've all experienced the basic tank toilet and understand the function of sitting there. There are 157 of them in the park. But just to call attention to you that there are those in the park that use a different means to go to the bathroom. And those are called squat toilets, um, which is essentially a hole in the ground. They pull the toilet, put the steel, stainless steel plate down. It's raised up a little bit off the ground, off the concrete floor, and essentially a hole that you squat over and do your business. Um, and that's the way that is. It said that squatting is more natural if you haven't tried it. I haven't tried it, but you know, <laughs> you can in Yellowstone National Park. Um, just a couple of statistics. Park Service toilets, uh, the yellow honey wagon here. Um, in a typical season, these guys uh, travel 18,000 miles, drive around the park, and uh, pulling out 330 gallons of human waste from these, um, these uh, tank toilets. So there's a tremendous amount of, of additional energy that's spent, not only um, keeping up with them, but removing all the effluent that comes out of them. So if you've ever run into a toilet that is closed, don't feel bad because there might be a reason it's closed, because it might be full. So just keep that in mind. Um, so just kind of wrapping up, um, it's worth noting that the Department of the Interior in 2016 recognized that um, and announced that visitors to the park are welcome to use any restroom that they sexually identify with that aligns with their gender identity, which I think kudos to them. So in addition to the architectural changes, there are structural changes, the structural changes on the architectural side, there are cultural changes as well. And this is just in terms of that, looking at the, of the number of signs that are available to us today um, when you walk into a toilet or walk into a restroom. And we're all familiar with the disability component. And, uh, as an architect, uh, that's a really big component of what I, the way I look at everything in, in preservation. Um, we, we as architects want to preserve things, but at the same time, we want to make it accessible to all. So um, there are compromises that play into that. And I uh, also want to talk here on the finishes. Um, it's the, I, I think it's really important to note in particularly a kind of a post-COVID world that we live in, knock on wood, um, that there is, that the tile finishes, these are finishes that are durable, lasting, and um, cleanable. Um, having talked to and having done surveys of the restrooms in the park, um, they can get really bad. I mean, just in terms of the way people interact with the restrooms in the park, they can be very messy. And I don't have no envy for the person who has to go in and clean up after the, some of the people. But um, so there is a reason for these finishes. And the idea too is we spend a lot of time looking at um, in terms of the color palettes and tile designs and mosaic patterns and trying to identify unique patterns specific to each one of the locations in the park. So next time you're there, you can kind of check that out and see if you can see any little differences there. 
Just on a final note, recent statistics indicate that there are 422 toilets that get cleaned every day in Yellowstone National Park. So that's a lot. That's a lot. There are 35,000 miles of toilet paper that are used in a typical season. That's enough to stretch from Seattle to uh, Key West, Florida. And I don't know what the current ranking is for Yellowstone, but it's been ranked up to the third most visited park in the system. Um, I think that's dropped down a bit, um, legitimately so, in recent times. Um, in 2020, um, the facilities uh, in the park treated over 124 million gallons of wastewater, which is a lot for the season. But just to put that into a little bit more comparison, city of Missoula processes 180 million gallons a month. And uh, a place like Haver, Montana processes 54 million gallons a month. So at 124 million gallons for a season, maybe that's not so bad. Um, it's still a lot of water to consider. But just to leave you with that, um, it does make you think about means that, because I think there's a new generation out here, out there that's going to look at this and say, is this sustainable? And what are our next level of conservation that can occur in the park? And what are the next changes that are coming to uh, restroom facilities? So I'll leave you with that thought. Thank you very much.